Good evening. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 9? We're, we're kind of swapping it up a little bit. We're taking a, a brief break from uh, the Psalms. And we're going to look uh, for the next couple of weeks at uh, the office of, um, of Christ as our priest. And I'm really excited about this. I love uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, the major theme throughout the book of Hebrews is ultimately uh, Christ is better. Um, and what you see happen all throughout the book of Hebrews is this idea that um, these comparisons to Old Testament um, individuals, Old Testament people, or even Old Testament um, pictures such as the tabernacle and a comparison um, of those things to Christ. And ultimately the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews is making is Christ is better. Um, And so what we're going to look at this evening is Christ as our priest. Um, before we go there, I kind of want to give some background information on what it meant to be a priest because in our day and time, we have this idea of priest. Um, I, I think in particularly about moments in my life where I'll introduce myself and I'll say, I'm a pastor. And, and then someone quickly says or responds, oh, a priest. I'm like, no, um, I, I am not a priest. I, I believe in the priesthood of all believers as we see in First Peter um, but I myself am not a priest. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a gospel herald, essentially. And that's really all I want to be. Um, and so when we think about priests, we want to understand it from the biblical perspective. What does it mean to be a priest? Um, and so uh, in your Bibles, you'll find in Leviticus chapter 1, uh, really 1 through chapter 16, and Exodus chapter 29, you'll see an institution of the priesthood. Now, I really want to walk you through kind of a story, a moment in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the day of the nation of Israel. I mean, an incredible moment, and really a moment that they looked forward to every year called the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, you'll find this day kind of played out, and ultimately what would happen is the whole nation of Israel would gather. I mean, it would be an incredible day. Um, even as time uh, progressed and they began to no longer meet in the tabernacle, but would meet at the temple in Jerusalem, there would be this period of time where all of Israel would begin to ascend up to Jerusalem and they would look forward to this day of atonement. And ultimately what this was was a day where the priest, one particular priest known as the high priest, would make atonement for the sins of all the nation of Israel. And when he would make atonement for sins, he's in particularly making atonement for unintentional or sins that the people were not aware of. Now, we, we're all very familiar with this, right? The sins that we may commit day in and day out, but we don't really have an awareness of them. Um, whether it be just a lack of faith or whether it be pride that arises in our heart, ultimately we may commit those sins without ever being aware of them. And at the exact same time, we have sins that we're very clearly aware of, right? When we rebel against God, we feel it instantly in our hearts and in our souls, and we're reminded of our sinful nature. But this day in particular is meant to atone for all of the sins of Israel, the ones that they were unaware that they had committed. This is a very important day. Let's talk about it for just a minute. Uh, If we were in this room um, of Israel in this particular day, can you imagine going in day in and day out, offering sacrifices for the sins that you knew you commit. When you rebelled against God, the immediate response was for you to go and to present a sacrifice to God, whether it be um, through the blood of of a dove or a lamb, or whether it be through offering some type of fruit to the Lord. Um, That was a, a way for the nation of Israel to say, I know that I've sinned, I know I've rebelled against you, and ultimately I'm bringing the sacrifice to appease you for my sin." Now, those things make perfect sense, but they still had to deal with the weight that there has been sin that I have committed against a holy God that has not been atoned for. Now, can we just take a pause and imagine the weight that we would feel under that? I mean, can we all agree that we sin far more than we realize? 
I mean, we have uh, before us a call to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And I can guarantee you, at bare minimum, that I do not meet that standard. And every single time I miss the mark, whether I am aware of it or not, it is offensive to the holy, holy, holy God. And so what we discover then is this Day of Atonement is a moment for all of Israel to come and to celebrate the fact that their sin can be atoned for. And they would walk away from this thrilled. They would walk away from this seeing um, my sin has been atoned for, and they would say, yes, I, I rejoice in this. But you know what I always consider as we look at this? As they walk back home and they unintentionally sin, they have to pause and wait a year, a year for that sin to be atoned for. Now, at the exact same time, they might feel a little bit of freedom from the past year's sins. Almost instantly, they would feel the weight that, but I've already sinned. I've already rebelled against God in this new year, and I have to wait a whole year for my sin to be atoned for. They would feel this weight, this burden in them, and what it would almost immediately point them to is that this is not the reality. This is not the promise, but this is simply a shadow of it. It's a way for us to look in and see what is necessary for our redemption and look forward to something that's coming. And so as we consider a priest, ultimately what a priest would do is he was the one who would mediate this. He would be the one who made sacrifices for the sin, that when the nation of Israel brought a sacrifice, they would be the one who took a knife to it and watched the blood spill out for the sin of the people. And as they did that, and as the nation of Israel would watch this blood be spilled, they would be reminded of a couple of things. They would be reminded first and foremost that their sin deserves death. Can you imagine a more sobering moment than when you bring an animal for the sin that you've committed and watch, it, watch the life fall out of it? You would, you would almost immediately feel the weight of this is what sin is. Sin is death. Sin is deserving of God's eternal punishment and wrath. And, and, and as a priest, can you imagine day in and day out, your job is to slay animals as they come in for the sins of the people. And even then, looking forward to this one day where all the sins, unintentional sins of the nation of Israel would be paid for. I mean, the weight that you would feel of that. Being a priest was a, was a lofty thing. And it was, it was reserved for simply a select few. And particularly, in the Old Testament, the Levites. Um, the people, uh, descendants of Aaron. They were uniquely chosen for this task and God gave them different rituals and things like that to perform. They were, um, they, they, they were absolutely necessary for the nation of Israel and if they were not in place, then there would be no, none of the sacrificial system that was given by God to them would have ever been put in place. And what's important here is this. If Israel is in need of a priest, each and every one of us is as well. Ultimately, what it comes down to is this, that the human race is in need of a priest, is in need of one to stand in the gap between God and man. And this is crucial for us to understand as we continue this discussion of Christ as our priest. Um, The very first thing we need to know is we are actually in need of a priest. So let me explain a couple of reasons why we are in need of a priest. Because I'm going to be honest with you, the first thing that anyone is going to argue against Christ being our priest is I need no priest. I need no priest. I need no one to stand in the gap between me and God. But ultimately, we have to remember that we have actually offended a holy God and we are under, he is under no obligation to give us anything but eternal wrath and punishment. 
And so with that, we are in need of someone to stand in the gap between us and God. Because uh, as Isaiah 59, 2 says, our sin has made a separation between us and God. That means there's a gap here. There's, there's something hindering our relationship, namely sin. And then it goes on further and says, your iniquity has hid his face from you. That if we desire a right relationship with God, ultimately we need a priest, one who is able to stand in the gap. Now, one thing I want to point out to you is this. The work of the priest is twofold. There are two major offices, two major requirements of the priest. First of all, his work is sacrificial. Uh, When you look into Leviticus chapters 1 through 16, you see the work of a priest. And all throughout those chapters, you see these pictures of uh, of sin offering being brought and the, the, uh, the priest would sacrifice for the individual. Then also we see the idea of the priest is a mediator. He's the one who goes into the Holy of Holies and he's the one who actually makes atonement and provides for them a way to bridge that gap, bridge that relationship. Now, the issue is that the Levites filled this office in the Old Testament but could not do so perfectly. Number three that you see there, the Levites filled this office in the Old Testament but could not do so perfectly. Now, this is the major issue. The, the, the Levites would go in and they would, and they would perform these, these, uh, these sacrifices, but ultimately what you would find is that these sacrifices had to continually be made. And simply because they had to continually be made, it shows that they were imperfect. They could not do what the law required them to do. It could not actually atone for their sin. And so us, as we consider men as priests, uh, even in our present day, there's absolutely no man apart from the man Christ Jesus who is able to stand in the gap between you and God, that he is completely incapable of doing so. If he were to offer sacrifices for you to a holy God, he can't even do that well because he has his own sin. There's his own barrier between himself and God, whether he calls himself a priest or not. And so what we desperately need then is a better priest, a perfect priest. And so what we see here is this. Christ is our better priest. Now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 as we begin looking at this idea that Christ is indeed our better priest. Christ is our perfect priest. And the writer of Hebrews, as he's approaching this topic, and Hebrews is such an interesting book, uh, many argue that the book of Hebrews is absolutely closed to us unless we understand the book of Leviticus. For us to fully understand and delve into the depths of the book of Hebrews, we must have an understanding of the sacrificial system that is in the book of Leviticus. Scripture speaks to Scripture. For us to understand the entirety of what God's Word is revealing to us, it's important that we actually have an understanding of it the whole way, out, the whole, the whole way through. If we don't, then we're going to miss things. And so as we come to this text, my prayer is that as we do so, we'll come with the understanding that, that, that we absolutely do need a priest, and there are very specific requirements that he has to fulfill. So let's dive into the text. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, it says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now notice verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this evening, my prayer is that we would simply take a moment to pause and to consider, to consider Christ our great priest. Lord, to consider our need, to consider the fact that we, apart from Christ's work on the cross, apart from the way that he mediates for us day in and day out, Lord, we would be uh, cursed, we would be separated from you for all eternity. So, Father, as we come this evening, my prayer is that we would just celebrate Christ and his goodness, that he is indeed the better priest, that he has made a better sacrifice. And so, Father, would you um, use the foolishness of preaching, Lord, with the authority and power of your word. Lord, I confess to you my weakness, Lord, that I am but a man, but your scripture is authoritative, that it always accomplishes the purpose that's set out for it. And so, Father, as we dive into the scriptures, we claim that promise, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that our hearts might be open to the scriptures, and that you would do a great work in us, Lord. Give us an encounter with Christ, and Lord, sanctify us through your word. It is in the name of Christ Jesus, and through his blood we pray. Amen. So what we want to look at is this idea of the sacrificial work of Christ. Um, So in Hebrews chapter 9, we see this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now, we have, to be, we have to be intentional here as we approach this topic to put ourselves into a proper perspective. The writer of Hebrews very clearly is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He is trying to make very, very uh, precise arguments looking at what all the Hebrew people would have considered men that he would have put in high esteem. And he's ultimately making arguments that the Christ that, that has come, Jesus in particular, has fulfilled all of these things and is actually better than Moses as we see previously and leading into this idea of the high priest, one to whom they would look to actually make purifications for their sins. And, and, they would, and you can imagine them as they go day in and day out. I mean, you can imagine the, the 80-year-old Israelite who for 80 years either has been carried by his parents or took the journey himself to go and to see the sacrifice for sins on the Day of Atonement be made, looking forward to the good things that are to come. And let's just place ourselves in that position for just a moment. Wouldn't you imagine that there would be this weight in us that this has almost reached a level of futility? Like, I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again, and the same results. I had to come back next year. The sacrifice, even though it's supposed to do something for a year, ultimately it can't do what it desperately needs to do, and I'm still in my sin. You would almost think that they would have this burden in their hearts longing for what is absolutely necessary and what is actually coming. And so we look at verse 11 here, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, I want you to feel the weight for just a minute as the Israelite would read this. The good thing they have been waiting for has actually come. The good thing that they have been waiting for, that great and faithful high priest, has actually come to them and is actually going to provide a sacrifice that is sufficient to rescue them for their sin. And far too often when we come to the scriptures, we don't stop and think and place ourselves in the position of the reader. As an Israelite would read this, they understood when they looked at the text, the good thing that they're talking about is this great high priest. Even though these high priests before him, the sons of Aaron, they've been completely incapable of doing what, what God had asked them to do as the priesthood, but then Christ has come and the good things have finally arrived. The good things have finally arrived. The the promises, all the grand promises of God in Christ are yes and amen and they've arrived. They're here. And so when we look at this passage, imagine being uh, one who has watched sacrifices, watched bloodshed day in and day out throughout the entirety of their lives and now they see that this finally comes to the end because the good thing has actually arrived. The good thing is namely Christ. He has arrived. The Messiah is here. 
And so his sacrificial work is better in so many ways, but primarily because it is actually here. Now, as we look at this passage, maybe it's good for us to consider the fact that the sacrifice of Christ has actually occurred. We're looking back on something that's happened. And friends, when we consider the fact that the good things of God have arrived in Christ, we should be so wrapped up in those things that they consume our thoughts and our hearts and our emotions. Because when we begin to to, to waver in our understanding that good things have actually arrived for us, we begin to look for anything else to satisfy them. And what ultimately the writer of Hebrews is arguing here is you need to look to Christ and He be your satisfaction. He is your high priest. He is the reason that you can rest comfortably in your salvation. It's not like the blood of goats and bulls that you will watch be slaughtered time and time again. It is finished. And so as we look at this, we're going to look at a couple of ways, four in particular, that the sacrifice of Christ is greater, is better than all of the previous sacrifices that had been made. And they had been being made for thousands of years. Thousands of years, these sacrifices have been made. So let's look at how Christ's sacrifice is better. First, it is better by location. It may seem like an odd one. Why is it better by location? Well, let's look at the text. It says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So let's stop for a moment and consider this. We live in, I mean, just to be real honest, we live in a world of shadows, don't we? I mean, when we look at things here on the earth, they are more often than not shadows. Let's take marriage, for example. Marriage is a very important part of our society, but ultimately marriage is a shadow. Marriage is meant to be representative of the triune God's relationship with his church, namely Christ in the church. We see this very clearly laid out in Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, just a beautiful passage talking about the relationship between the husband and the wife. There's unique roles that God has given. But the primary purpose of this is to reveal the mystery that is Christ and his church. Or even, let's go further, let's look at the doctrines of adoption. Uh, Not too long ago, I preached on that topic. I love the doctrine of adoption. And because of that, I love to see the shadow of adoption here on the earth where uh, someone who is outside of a relationship with a parent and, or a mother and a father, and a mother and a father simply say, I'm going to choose you, I'm going to bring you into my family, I'm going to give you my name, I want, you to, to, I want to raise you, I want to train you, and ultimately I want you to bear my name throughout the entirety of your life, and I want to give you an inheritance. I mean, you look at someone who's completely outside of your home, unworthy of your love, I mean, really there's no necessity of it, and yet you freely give it. Why? Because it's a shadow. It's a shadow of the love that's been shown to you. You've been adopted into the family of God, and thus you have a heart and a longing to show love to someone who really, it's not forced on you. You do it of your own accord. We live in a world of shadows. In the exact same way in the book of Leviticus, I mean in the book of Exodus, when God gives the the, the specifications of the tabernacle. Why? Why did he give such exact specifications of a tabernacle? He made sure that everyone, even that the workers, were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do everything excellently. He made sure that it looked really, really good. Not because it was like, I want this to be real pretty, but it was because it was a representation. It was a shadow of a better tabernacle. It was a shadow of a better temple. Ultimately, the temple where the blood of goats and bulls would never, ever touch the altar of the mercy seat. Never. It would never happen. Never would the blood of goats and bulls, why would I ever sully that great altar? And so when when the priest would slaughter animals and lay their blood across the altar, it was not meant to be, yes, this will actually atone. No, it was meant for the eyes of the Israelites to look in and the priest to look in and see blood stained on an altar and say, there is a better altar. There is a better altar and there is a greater mercy seat. One that when the blood actually touches it, it it will absolve me of sin, not for just this year, but for past, present, and future. That when I watch the blood that that has been 
slain, I mean, uh, spilt before the foundation of the world, touched that altar, then I can rest comfortably. I am safe and secure, and my sin is atoned for. And I think probably the greatest way to see this is in Isaiah chapter 6. It's odd, perhaps, to go back and consider Isaiah chapter 6, but what you find there is an incredible picture. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And the unique thing happens is Isaiah is looking at this, this incredible picture of the Lord high and lifted up, and you see seraphim around his throne saying, holy, holy, holy. I mean, just proclaiming the excellencies of the God that is seated on the throne. You see this picture of, uh, of Isaiah saying, woe is me, almost this grand realization of how wicked he truly is. One of the incredible pictures there is Isaiah the prophet says, woe is, of, woe is me, for I am of unclean lips. It's almost as if he, is, he has this, this picture of himself that at least one part of me is clean. I'm a prophet of God. I'm called to speak the truths of Scripture. And yet the very first thing he points out is, I am of unclean lips. He says, even the purest thing about me is wretched. And yet you see this picture of a seraphim go and take coals from the altar and and touch the lips of Isaiah and says, and the, the language is incredibly interesting because it actually says your sin is atoned for. It's atoned for. How? The blood of goats and bulls can't take away sin. It's because the tongs pulled coal that had been drenched with the blood of Christ. It was that better altar. Now let me explain to you how that works. I know we're looking at time here, and time is indeed linear, but understand this, that Christ is indeed the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That the only blood to ever touch that altar to purify it was his own. He made that sacrifice for sin. And the only way that Isaiah, even the prophet of God's sin, could be atoned for, it can't be from blood of goats and bulls. It can only be of the precious, perfect, spotless lamb of God, Christ. The coals were only able to purify him of sin is because they were stained with the blood of Christ. And so the location is incredibly important. It is indeed better. It is not a location here on the earth, but it is simply a, uh, uh, everything here is simply a shadow of the better one. Is a shadow of the better blood. And can you imagine any blood being offered in that location apart from the actual perfect blood of Christ? Can you imagine one trying to bring in the blood of a goat and a bull into that perfect, perfect altar? You would imagine they would be immediately removed. How dare you bring any blood here other than the precious, precious, perfect blood of Christ? And so it is better by its location. Not guarded by this veil that is meant to represent one blocking the way, but actually being accepted in the grand location of a heavenly tabernacle. It is better by sufficiency. Let's look back at the text. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Mm. There are a few sweeter texts. He entered once for all. I like to word it like this. Christ entered the temple once for all so that we may always have right of entry. When Christ entered into that place to offer his blood in that grand location, it was not one that he would ever repeat. Now I want you to consider for a minute here the Israelites who would watch day in and day out. I mean, year after year they would see the, the high priest offering the exact same thing almost to denote the fact that it is completely ineffectual. It served some purpose, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
But, but it really can't be sufficient. Otherwise, it would, it would not have to be done time and time and time again. And I was actually talking to a, a buddy of mine today as I was uh, in the barbershop, and he asked me what the Lord had been showing to me. And I said, well, let's talk about Hebrews chapter 9. And we talked about the sufficiency of the atonement. He said, well, what about my sin after I'm saved? It, it burdens me so. And it was interesting to hear this relatively new believer. He said, I, my sin before I was a believer, I, I know is paid for. And he almost had this guilt and this weight every time he sinned as a believer. And there should be a, a guilt, a weight, a little bit, just because it should lead us to repentance. But ultimately, what guilt can you have? There is no guilt that the believer can cling to because it's been paid for in full in Christ. Whether it be past, present, or future, it's been done away with. Colossians chapter 3 says it's been nailed to the cross, canceling the record of debt. Listen to that, canceling the record of debt. I mean, every time I think about this text, I think about mortgages. I would be thrilled if someone would cancel my record of debt, right? I mean, but what a greater weight to be lifted. It's money. This is eternal sin, deserving wrath and punishment and judgment. And Christ can satisfy it in three hours on the cross? What a sufficient offering. It completely satisfies for all the sins of of, of His people. And all of a sudden, we're free. We're free. And and what, what great sufficiency that never again will I have to consider my sin because it's been dealt with in full. And no one can bring a charge against me, can they? Romans chapter 8 speaks very clearly who can bring a charge against God's elect. It's laughable. It's laughable. Who dares approach Christ and say, what of this sin? What of this one? What do you mean, what of that one? It's been dealt with. You see, we've forgotten what justification means. It's not sweeping something under the rug that it might be brought to light eventually. No. The believer who is in Christ is covered by the blood of Christ that is sufficiently sufficiently atoned for each and every sin you will ever commit, past, present, and future. And so, believer in here, do not allow yourself to be hindered by the weight of sin in your life. Repent, yes, but cling to the cross of Christ, for in it you are absolved, you are free, your sin is atoned for. I heard a pastor once say, for every one time you look at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. One of the sweetest sayings. And, all the, and then I can imagine almost the enemy is he would bring attention to my sin and as I look at the cross, he would have to find a new tactic because all that does is make me cherish Christ more. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Not in his holy court, for Christ's blood is actually accepted on that grand altar. See, Christ is our better priest because of the location by which he sacrificed that great blood. Secondly, he is our better priest because of the sufficiency of his atonement. And thirdly, he is better by substance. Let's look at this. Chapter 9, verse 12 says this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. His own blood. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here because what you'll see um, in the next, um, in the next, in verse 13, you'll see this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through, eternal, who, th- who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? So what I want to point out real quickly is that there was actually something to the substance of the sacrifice of goats and bulls. But here is what it is. It was simply a 
way of purification for the flesh that they might actually carry out the rituals that God had set before them, but could not do anything to the actual sin that was in the believer's life or in the individual's life. It could not make atonement for sin. It could purify for the ideas of ritual and the ideas of sacrificing on that altar. You can even picture this, that Aaron, before he would go, and would make sacrifice for himself, but ultimately that sacrifice meant nothing apart from the finished work of Christ. It was simply a means of saying, through a sacrifice I am pure. Um, and almost looking forward to that. And so let's ask the question then, um, Christ's blood, why was it so necessary that it be his blood? Why was it important that it must be the, the spotless, sinless son of God's blood? And so what I want to point out here is this, that first thing that is necessary in the atonement, that is necessary for Christ to make purification for sin, is that he must actually be truly man. He must truly be man. If he was not, then how could he make purification for man's sin? He couldn't. So when, when God, looks at, God looks at man and he sees men sacrificing goats and bulls, like, this is not of you. The, the goat and the bull did nothing to, to sin and rebel against me. That's you. That's man. I, your representative is Adam, and he deserves my wrath and my fury, and you're in him. And so the only way that we can be absolved of sin is if we have one that's truly man, that lived a perfect and sinless and spotless life before God absolutely flawless, so that not only could he bear our sin, but also that we could be accredited with his righteousness. It had to be truly man. But at the exact same time, it had to be truly God. Let me point out a couple of reasons why. First of all, if it was not truly God, then he could by no means bear the weight of God's wrath. I want you to consider the mystery for just a moment. At the cross of Christ, we see him there for about six hours is the general understanding. And for three hours, we see the darkness fall. And, and that, in that moment, is what most, most people believe is where the wrath of God was emptied on Christ. So let's just consider for a moment that one who was only truly man, do you think that he could have drank an eternal amount of God's wrath in three hours? That's foolishness. Only the God of time who can be able to do that. And so what you see instead is this picture. One who is truly man, who lived a perfect and spotless life, whose blood was actually perfect, bear the eternal wrath of God on himself because he was truly God. And the cup that had been passed all the way from Genesis chapter 3 was drank completely to the dregs. There was nothing left. He emptied it. And he did it in three hours. Consider the cross for just a moment. That which takes... One sin cannot be purged in an eternal amount of time in hell. But Christ could purge the sin of all his people in three hours. Three hours. One of my favorite musicians said it this way. For three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. You see, he drank the cup of wrath and he was able, because he was truly man, able to be your representative. But he was able to take that wrath because he was truly God. Only, only the true God-man, Jesus Christ, can atone for the sins of his people. Only he is able. And so it is better by substance because that blood is actually able to save. Lastly, it is better by its result. Let's look at this. We're going to look at three major things that the blood of Christ actually does. And this is important. We need to understand that the cross actually saves. 
Um, we, we, we have this watered-down gospel where the, where the cross is just something that comes in. It's kind of a means to do something, but is not a, a way of salvation in and of itself. It's almost like the idea of um, a husband taking a firearm and protecting his family. Um, we look at it and we say, well, who protected the family, the firearm or the, or the man? The man did. The man wanted the weapon and he was able to protect. We don't look at the gun and give it credit, Right? And so when we look here and we say that the cross actually does save, it is salvific in nature. When we see Christ die on the cross, it secures salvation for his people. And it's a blessed thing to consider. That when Christ was crucified, my sin was dealt with in full there. That he called me out. All of my sin placed on Christ. He bore it completely and totally so that I can say with confidence now, who can bring a charge against me? My sin's been paid for. And so because the, the sufficiency and the substance was so great, we must also assume, and according to this text, assume the result is just as grand. So let's see what the text has to say. So in verse 13, it says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, listen to this, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Uh, excuse me, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now jump back up to verse 12. I want to point out one more thing, and that's where we'll start. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus, notice this language here, securing an eternal redemption. So let's walk through this really quickly. Uh, Jumping back up into verse 12, we see this. Listen to this language, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's just walk through this word by word, shall we? First word we're going to talk about, securing. What does it mean to secure? I mean, is it like just this, I kind of have it in my possession, but it's like when you think about baseball almost, one of the most important things is that the guy who catches it actually has it in his possession, right? If it's not in his possession, then it doesn't really count. You drop the ball, whatever. If he's bobbling it, it's not secure unless he actually has full possession of it. So when we come to the scripture and it says, thus securing, it's not this idea that he has simply kind of got a little bit of a grasp on salvation. It's that he actually secures salvation for his people. He actually secures salvation. What great comfort is that for us, isn't it? I mean, consider for just a moment. When we think about Christ, far too often we think that, yeah, he, he kind of secured salvation, but I've got to do this, 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 and this. And if I don't do this well, then ultimately I'm going to fall from grace or I'm going to be cast out of his presence and fellowship. But guys, I want you to understand that if you're in Christ, your salvation is secure. It's not based on anything that you would do. It's completely wrapped up in his finished work. Christ secured your salvation. Christ secured your salvation. Isn't that a good thing that the sovereign God of the universe holds your salvation in his hand? I can rest really comfortably at night. When I sin, when I fall, I don't immediately go into this downward spiral of if I lost favor with God. Because no, because his blood actually secured my my favor. And so in in, in Ephesians chapter 1, when it says that we are high favorites of heaven, I rest very comfortably knowing that that's wrapped up in Christ, not in me. Oh, what blessed truth that I am a failure. I mean, I can't tell you the errors that I make in my life, the the failures that I have day in and day out. I mean, I sin, I'm prideful, I'm boastful. And yet what I have great comfort in is even when I am the most arrogant, even when I'm at my worst, it matters not because Christ has secured my salvation. He has secured it. It is His And so we rest comfortably because he has actually secured it. Notice the other two words we want to consider. And eternal. Eternal time. 
Eternal redemption. You know, I have friends, and still to this day, it's an odd thing to think about eternity, isn't it? It kind of freaks us out a little bit because eternity, right? Um, when we think about eternity, the time never ending, I mean, just the vastness of that, like we don't really understand and fathom things that have no beginning or an end, but we as human souls are eternal. You know that? We are actually eternal. As we come into creation, as God creates us from this point forward, our souls will indeed exist. They will exist in one of two places, either in eternal death or in eternal redemption. And so what we have here is the, the, what Christ actually secures is our eternal fate to dwell with him. I love this truth. That because of what Christ has done, because it is secured, because he actually possesses it, that means that there is not a single thing that anything in this world can do to separate me from him. I am eternally his. I am eternally redeemed. Redeemed has this idea of being purchased, of being brought into, of being carried somewhere. And so when I think about redeemed here, especially in this text, that that redemption is something that is not cheap, but it's costly to Christ. He actually had to pay his blood. He had to suffer those three hours. And that costly grace that we have received is a sweet, sweet thing because we know that the grace is actually, has actually secured us. And that how, how in the world would Christ ever say, um, you know, I redeemed you for just a little bit of time, but I'm going to let you go now. You're his. You're his. The exact same way that when you take your marriage vows, your bride or your husband is yours. And by God's grace for all your days. You see, his result is what makes him a better and more faithful high priest. He brings actual redemption. He brings eternal redemption. And we are safe and secure in it. Notice this as well. In verse 14 it says this. Actually, I apologize. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ sanctify? Now, sanctification is one of those terms that we have forgotten in our current church age, it seems, where sanctification is something that kind of is supposed to happen in your life but isn't a guarantee. Uh, I'm sorry, I cannot subscribe to that. Um, Romans chapter 8 Uh, verse 28 and 29, I think, make it abundantly clear. And we love verse 28. For God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes and amen? Um, We forget often is the next verse. Um, And the next verse is even a greater reason to say amen. But when we think about God actively working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, we have to some degree ask, what is that good? Right? I mean, we almost always look at it as this idea of some, some like, kind of like mystical good that's going to come across you, like um, you, something bad happens to you, but it's okay, God's going to bring you something better in this life. That's not necessarily what that means at all. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29 is referring to sanctification. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I want you to notice this language, and let's not get upset about one of the words. Uh, when God sets something in motion, is it going to happen? you will be conformed to the image of Christ. And we are fools if we do not believe that Christ is able to bring that about in his believers' lives. Now here's what I want to encourage you with and make this abundantly clear, that if you be in Christ, then you can rest comfortably. The blood that bought you will also sanctify you. And let me tell you why that's such good news for the church. First of all, it's good news because we will look different in the world. As we look around at our surrounding uh, day and time, one that we see all types of licentiousness, all this 
terrible sin spiraling out of control, what you actually will see in the church is not the church bowing to that, but instead you'll see the Holy Spirit of God through the blood of Christ begin to make the church so distinct and holy that they will be different. They will be strangers in their age. They will be aliens, as the Scripture makes abundantly clear that we will be. Secondly, for you as a believer, what great comfort you have if you're being sanctified, you have been justified. Isn't that a sweet thing? That if God is actively working in your life to conform you into his image, then I'm not asking you to look back to a decision you made when you were six. I'm saying, look at, your, look at your life right now. Is God working? And if so, praise be to God, you've been justified. Lastly, that if you've been justified, you will be glorified. If you've been justified, God is making that abundantly clear to you through your sanctification. You can rest comfortably that at the moment of your death, you simply have just the briefest of moments, barely any, not even one that we can consider in our current time frame, you will be glorified with him. What a glorious truth. That the blood of Christ actually secures eternal redemption for you. That the blood of Christ will actively sanctify you. And lastly, let me point out this. For those of us who struggle with obedience, me. Notice this in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Paul's. All those dead works. You know, we see those, the most righteous of deeds where it's filthy rags before the Lord, friends. I'm just telling you that if you be in Christ, you actually have righteous deeds because God has empowered you to do them. Through the Holy Spirit of God, any good deed that you have produced is ultimately the result of the Holy Spirit working in your life, and those things are acceptable to God. The dead works that's mentioning here is bringing these, these false things time and time again. God, look at my deeds. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. And I can imagine the most fearful of days when those of us would stand before God and say, even in my crooked generation, I acted righteously. And he's going to look at you and say, excuse me? Look at your sin. Away with you, you evildoer. I never knew you. But notice this. The language there is so important. I never knew you. You know, we look at it and we almost always tremble at that verse, but instead I take a great delight that it's simply about being known by the Christ and knowing him. So I'm no longer going to bring dead works. Instead, I'm going to walk in the good works he set out for me from Ephesians uh, 2.10. He set them out for me. I get to rejoice in those and walk in those. Praise be to his name. Lastly, from dead works, listen, to serve the living God. One of the greatest delights for the believer is we get the grand privilege of serving Christ. You see, we're bound in our sin. Before this great priest comes, we're bound in our sin. We can't do anything of our own accord to serve Christ. We, we can't even have faith to believe in him. And yet, he gives that to us as a free gift of grace. And now we're able to be obedient to him, to strive with him, to enjoy his presence and to serve him faithfully. I was talking to a brother of mine the other day. I had um, a, a, a sweet, sweet older lady walk up to me and hand me a pamphlet. And uh, it was a Jehovah's Witness pamphlet. And I was... Let me just under, let me explain this to you. If a Jehovah's Witness walks up to me, I'm rejoicing. Like, it's just one of my favorite moments of the day. And so she hands me this pamphlet, and uh, she says, if you, if you fill this out, you'll, if you, like, go take your Bible and read this. And I'm like, ma'am, let's talk. Um, and, and, and one of the greatest joys was I just had the opportunity to ask her if uh, Jesus was God. And she said, well, he's his son. And I was able to, to faithfully take the scriptures and say, no, Jesus is actually God. And I was able to walk her through John 1. And let me tell you something. Unfortunately, she did not repent and place her faith in Christ. But what a joy I had to be obedient to Christ and represent him well. You see, friends, if I was not in Christ and I did that, that would be a dead work. 
But because I am and because the Holy Spirit of God had, had prompted me by His grace to share the truth of the gospel, He gave me the grand privilege of defending the truth of the gospel. Friends, we have the greatest priest who is not only able to bring us to God, but He is also able to empower us for day-to-day ministry because our great priest actually makes us priest. 1 Peter chapter 1, we are a royal priesthood. All of that is purchased by the blood of Christ. And so you need nobody. You don't need a pastor. You don't need anybody to represent you before God. Christ does, and you have the grand privilege to enjoy Him forever and to serve Him faithfully for all your days. You are a royal priesthood because we have a great and faithful high priest in Christ.